from Public Health Institute. Welcome to the PHICC Global Health Podcast, a new podcast that highlights stories from the PHICC Global Health Fellowship Program and the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Funded Program implemented by the Public Health Institute. Our fellows are guided by CDC Global Health experts and work on the front lines of global health, developing the technical and professional skills needed to make meaningful contributions to today's global health challenges. I'm your host, Whitney Hall, the Program's Administration and Communications Specialist. Today, I'll be speaking with Danielle Fernandez, MPH. Danielle is a Global Health Surveillance Fellow with the Epidemiology and Surveillance Branch, which is part of the Division of Global HIV and TB at CDC's Center for Global Health in Atlanta, Georgia. Danielle discusses her previous work in outbreak investigation, including her work on Ebola and Zika. And you'll also hear about Danielle's work on HIV case surveillance with CDC in Tanzania and Zimbabwe and her work on CDC's COVID-19 response. Well, thank you, Danielle, so much for joining the podcast today. I'm excited to have you and hear more about your work. Oh, thanks very much, Whitney. I'm happy to be here um, and contribute to these great episodes I've seen on the podcast thus far. Great. Well, let's start with what sparked your interest in global health. That's usually kind of how we start these episodes. What influenced you to pursue your master's in public health as well? Uh, Sure thing. Um, So in college, I was a sociology and international development and humanitarian assistance major at the University of Florida. So um, I think I went into that knowing that I wanted to help people in some way, shape or form. My mom's a teacher. I thought about nursing. It was kind of one of those things that I always had this kind of bleeding heart and and wanted to help, but in a way that I felt was sustainable and kind of tangible to do so. So um, when I was in college, I started a the UNICEF chapter at the University of Florida, and that kind of got me peeked into kind of global issues. Um, and what I did not know then was the word for public health. Um, as one of the projects that we did during that UNICEF time, we partnered with um, a nonprofit that helped uh, support an orphanage in Haiti. And that was like post the earthquakes. And we planned a a kind of a service trip over there to teach English to help rebuild the school that was there. Um, Again, not really knowing that any of this really tied into public health, just kind of saying, okay, well, where do I kind of fit into this? And what what can I lend to these issues that we were identifying? Um, Upon coming back from Haiti, (laughs) I I tell this story kind of funny. Um, My mom picked me up from the airport. I went to one of my favorite Tex-Mex restaurants right by the airport. And I went to the restroom, washed my hands and came out crying. And my mom thought, what what happened? Um, And it was kind of at that moment that I realized that I had just been an hour of a flight away from where I took advantage of just so many um, what I consider to be commonplace um, amenities that we have in the States that I just wasn't seeing just again, an hour flight away in Haiti. Um, That kind of brought me to water issues and and kind of public health more broadly. Um, I was teaching for a year after graduating with my bachelor's degree and kind of doing a bit of research on my own, was able to finally put the term public health to all of these issues that um, I found myself kind of gravitating towards, and, and I decided to put in applications for a couple different Masters of Public Health programs at um, different universities across the states that all kind of had um, a, a really strong presence in, in global health issues. And, and here we are. 
Thank you for sharing that. I, I can definitely relate to that and just seeing inequity, you know, in, in our own country and around the world and just how how painful that can be. So really putting it into action, I think, is is inspiring to hear. Um, what was your public health work experience like before you became a fellow? Particularly, I know you worked at the Florida Department of Health and Zika Advisory Council in D.C., are there any key experiences that stand out as most impactful in building your skills and confirming your path in global health? The journey kind of continues, and I, I started my um, public health degree at Drexel University um, in Philadelphia. I graduated in 2015. At that point, I already knew that my interests within public health and global health were were primarily epidemiology and, and surveillance focused. So. Then as kind of a recent grad, I started applying to all kinds of positions. Um, I was not limited by geography. I was kind of casting a really wide net. Um, I'm originally from Florida, and funny enough, I, I didn't think I would end up right back where I had left from to go to graduate school. But I got a job as an applied epidemiologist for the Florida Department of Health in Miami. And I spent four years there. The team that I was on um, was applied epi and science, um, but we also kind of managed all of the outbreak investigations for the county. Um, so that got me kind of very interested in outbreak response and outbreak investigation. I learned a lot of very boots on the ground skills um, with the health department. And I tell people often that um, the people who work at, at local and state health departments really are kind of the, the bread and butter of, of public health, at least domestically. Um, they're going to be our first signals as to anything that is going on. Um, they are our first line of defense. Um, so kind of coming straight out of a, a master's program and then kind of going right into the trenches as I kind of think about it really just solidified the experience that or the education that I'd gotten while at, at Drexel. So as an epidemiologist at a local health department, I helped with routine case investigations, client interviews that kind of ran the gamut across any and all infectious diseases. That took me to investigating outbreaks of foodborne illness at like big corporate parties or um, birthday parties. Uh, we looked into um, healthcare associated infections that potentially came in um, originally from travel associated clinical care cases and then kind of just spread through hospitals. Uh, but probably the biggest thing that I took away from uh, my time down in Florida was uh, all of my vector borne disease work. So um, I came into the health department in 2015, which was the tail end of the 2014 West African Ebola outbreak. Uh, so I helped with traveler monitoring there, um, kind of those routine temperature checks that everybody saw uh, on the news at some point. Um, and then we had a, a, a small uh, period of time in which it was, quote unquote, quiet or quiet by Miami standards. Um, and then we started getting reports um, of a kind of a, a novel um, mosquito-borne disease coming out of Brazil, which we now all know was Zika. But um, as we were monitoring the, the situation in, in Latin America, we, Miami is an area where we do traditionally see um, dengue and, and other kind of cousins of Zika, if you will. Um, and eventually we knew it was only going to be a matter of time before we, we had kind of locally acquired Zika. And when that time came, it was myself and 
a good friend of mine that kind of volunteered to, to kind of lead the charge on how we were going to investigate this novel, um, mosquito-borne disease in our county. So that started us down a path of nearly um, eight months or so in which our job transitioned um, from kind of overall infectious disease epidemiology to leading the um, the response to the first locally acquired Zika outbreak in the continental United States. And in that role, I led all of the field investigations. So I worked with um, our like doctors and mosquito control and really just trying to figure out how far Zika had spread within our community. And that involved um, nearly daily household surveys in which we would uh, take teams out um, and collect samples from willing community members to test using PCR to determine if we had potential active transmission in those areas. Um, I'm sure if, if, if you all were watching the news at that time, um, there were these kind of scary red boxes around different um, parts of Miami-Dade County. And, and that was the work that our field teams were doing in which we were able to say that we had substantial evidence to, to uh, state that there was active ongoing transmission. Um, and for those who aren't as familiar with Zika virus, it's not just um, a mosquito-borne disease. It can be spread sexually and it can also spread from mother to baby. So there was, there was a lot of um, both kind of scientific epidemiology focus on that work, but also it kind of resonated with me coming from a sociology background and understanding the people part of, of this um, outbreak that we were seeing there. So that experience was wild to say the least. Right. It also it also <laughs> taught me that everything that I had learned in a textbook was going to look wildly different out in the field. Um, so I, I learned a, a bunch just by kind of just being at what I call the, the right place and the right time and willing to kind of stand up and, and work on that. Um, that transitioned over to the Zika Advisory Council, which was a role I applied for as kind of a consultant through NACHO. Um, and that was a group of 10 of us across the whole country who came with a very particular expertise. And this was post kind of the active point of, of Zika virus in the country. Uh, so we all kind of came at it from our respective um, experiences in our own jurisdictions to put together a, a kind of a how-to guidebook for local and state health jurisdictions if, if they were going to be having to investigate locally acquired or travel associated Zika. Um, I also in that role helped plan that year's vector control summit through NACHO. So I, I really kind of jumped headfirst into the whole mosquito-borne and, and vector-borne kind of disease realm. Um, and having Having had that experience, I think the, the joke was in Miami that if you wanted to, if you were interested in global health, um, Miami was about as close as you could get to global health without leaving the continental United States. So between coming in during Ebola, working through Zika, um, I think that kind of just further solidified that I was definitely on the right track for, for global health careers. Well, that's so interesting. I feel like we couldn't spend the whole podcast just talking about your work there. <laughs> um, but I want to hear about your work as a fellow, too, and I'm sure our listeners do as well. So why did you decide to pursue the PHI CDC Global Health Fellowship after that? Uh, absolutely. Um, 
So coming with a what I thought was a, a pretty good background um, from the domestic side, I, I had always been interested, as I mentioned, in, in global health, and I wasn't actively looking for a new position at the time of me applying for the PHI CDC Global Health Fellowship. I think it was sent to me from a colleague of just, hey, this kind of seems up your alley, like you should look into it. So I decided to just kind of go ahead and, and apply. I wanted to see if the skills that I had from that local health department really translated to the global health world. And and if I could do great work and if my skills were going to be um, useful and beneficial. So it was kind of one of those things that I wasn't really looking to leave, but this felt like too coincidental and, and well fitted of a position to kind of just let go. So I applied there. Um, and I think if I hadn't ended up in this fellowship, I, I wasn't going to be kind of looking elsewhere. So I do look back at it and think, um, that it was kind of, again, right place, right time, um, and it's turned out to be the right experience. Mm, nice. Uh, well, what is your current role as a fellow at CDC and how has it changed since the pandemic unfolded? Because you've all had a pretty unique experience in that you started <laughs> the, the fellowship right before the pandemic started. Um, so yeah, curious to hear about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I am a second year global health surveillance fellow um, within PHI. So I'm, I sit within the epidemiology and surveillance branch of the Division of Global HIV and TB. And I will note I'm one of the Atlanta based fellows. So within the epidemiology and surveillance branch, I sit on the clinical surveillance and epidemiology team. In that realm, um, I provide technical assistance to many different global HIV epidemiology and surveillance projects, including recent infection surveillance in Tanzania, which helps us um, kind of identify who the recently infected HIV cases are in the country that as countries get closer and closer to HIV epidemic control, it's useful to know who those who are currently being infected are so that we can identify who is perpetuating the transmission still and get them into uh, treatment and, and hopefully get closer and closer to epidemic control. I also support HIV case surveillance in Zimbabwe, and that is from a realm of a kind of data dashboard development and technical assistance role. Case surveillance actually is we don't have that in, in this country. It essentially follows a, a person from the time of their initial HIV diagnosis until the time of death. So our systems in the United States just aren't built to kind of longitudinally follow um, any kind of cases, let alone HIV or otherwise. Uh, so that's pretty neat. Um, that's something incredibly unique to the global HIV world and, and PEPFAR. And uh, kind of the third overarching project that I work on is providing analytic support to an interagency task force, which is looking specifically at advanced HIV disease and mortality. Um, usually, a lot of this support would be done in person, um, but that kind of pivots us to the second part of that question. Um, so before uh, COVID, um, it was very common and expected that you would be traveling pretty often, sometimes as much as uh, like once a month, to the countries that you supported on any of your various um, surveillance and epidemiology projects. Nowadays, we provide that support virtually. Funny enough, um, Tanzania was actually the biggest project that I was on before COVID hit, um, and I've been added on to Zimbabwe since. So all of the support that I've uh, lent to my 
Zimbabwe colleagues has only been virtually, which is kind of an interesting um, way to, to form new working relationships. Um, but on top of kind of changing the way that we do our routine work, we've also been pulled into supporting COVID-19 and the agency's wider response. So these days um, I work mostly on HIV still, unless I'm on a COVID deployment, which I, I currently am. Well, since you've had to be flexible, I imagine, given the changes brought about because of the pandemic, you know, whether it's remote work or expecting, you know, you were traveling before and then um, no one was traveling for a long time. So uh, what has helped you stay grounded personally or professionally? Oh, yeah, that's that's a good question. Mm-hmm. Um, I think everybody was that thought that they were going nuts at some point. Um, you know, when we were sheltering in place or quarantining, um, when you go from a global health world that's so used to traveling to kind of not traveling, um, you find yourself having to kind of ground yourself, as as you said, um, in one way or another. Oddly enough, or I guess not so oddly for all of us who have now been on telework for a year and a half or so, um, even though the pandemic has caused us all to work remotely from home and we're not having kind of this um, face-to-face contact with our um, friends and family and colleagues. I've reconnected with, again, friends, families, and colleagues through Zoom calls. And I think that's because we we aren't out and about anymore. Um, so I've been able to have kind of standing monthly calls with friends of mine from graduate school, with, with some of the fellows that are actually based overseas that I've become very good friends with. Um, it's been absolutely crucial to continue that social support kind of network, both um, with people that I would usually see every single day and then with, with people who I may have fallen out of touch with when, when our lives were busier and more outdoors. Um, so definitely it's been a um, very intentional effort on my part to make sure that I've stayed connected with with friends and family kind of near and far. Um, I also have brought in several additional house plants <laughs> into my apartment during all of this. I've, I've really appreciated any time I can be around nature or, or kind of just greenery in general. So um, all of last summer, actually, because we we were really not doing a whole lot um, outside of our apartments, I was taking the opportunity to just get outside and I would I would go for a hike. I would go kayaking. I think there was a whole spell in which um, a few friends of mine and I went kayaking every weekend in the Atlanta area. So that felt like a safe way to make sure that we were still getting um, some physical activity and that we were taking care of our mental health and we were having um, some kind of socialization in a way that that felt uh, safe enough. Um, and then the other piece that uh, kind of goes hand in hand with loving to travel and, and whatnot is that I love diverse cuisines. Um, but since we weren't eating at restaurants, um, I was doing my best to still support like local restaurants in our area. And then also to kind of challenge myself to cook some of those cuisines that I usually would go out and, and, and find. Um, so uh, between kind of all of those um, food, plants, and people, I think that kept me pretty level-headed and, and grounded through this all. And it reminds me of kind of the New York Times um, travel section where they were doing a, kind of focusing on how you can travel while you're staying home through cooking <laughs> right. and listening to music <laughs> and all of that. So <laughs> Exactly. We've had to get creative. 
Right. <laughs> um, well, we interviewed actually, you know, one of your mentors recently, Dr. Hamad Ali. Um, it would be you know, really great to hear from you what it's like to work with CDC staff and what have been highlights of your experience with staff or mentors at CDC so far. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am incredibly lucky that I have a phenomenal team that I work on, and Hamad is probably the the biggest part of that team when I think about how wonderful they all have been. So um, our clinical surveillance and epidemiology team has probably 10 or 11 of us on it, and everybody kind of just operates as colleagues, but also as friends, which which has been absolutely crucial during this whole time. I mean, we're all experiencing um, telework in different ways. We've onboarded new fellowship cohorts like entirely when nobody's been in the office. Um, And our team has kind of gone above and beyond to make sure that everybody feels included, that we are kind of maintaining very open and honest channels of communication. Um, I've become good friends with some of my colleagues to the point that we would meet up for a hike or we would um, go for a walk, we would just meet in a park. So it's been great that even though we haven't been in the office, I've I've still felt like I've been very connected to my team. Um, It's also a, a group of people that really challenge you to be the best version of yourself and and the best professional that you can be. So because you're constantly surrounded by so many people who are subject matter experts in in what they do, it really forces you to kind of think like outside of the box and and really push yourself and, and, and strive to be, again, just a bit better than you were, you know, last year or in your graduate programs. Um, Yes, Hamad, I think, was um, interviewed on one of these previous episodes, and, and he and I have um, just become very good friends. He's, he's a phenomenal mentor. Um, he's, he's very supportive. Um, he's friendly. He's approachable. So um, even beyond just our kind of routine work-related conversation, he's, he's been really great at just kind of checking in at at different points throughout this response just to see how I'm doing overall. And, and that kind of communication goes both ways. So I think kind of um, how it would be anywhere, the work is the work is one thing when you're in, in a profession at a, at a, or in a career, um, being able to like the people that you're working with is just so much more important. Um, and I think this year has really just opened my eyes as to how absolutely lucky I am to have just phenomenal colleagues. That's wonderful to hear. Um, Well, similar kind of to that theme, I know that you've done a great job at networking within CDC, which says a lot since it's such a large agency. I'm sure it could feel overwhelming. Um, Can you talk about your experience on CDC's Young Professionals Network and share with listeners what that is? And then if you have any advice uh, for being new to CDC and making the most of a fellowship position, I know you know, there's a lot of people in school for public health who probably dream about um, being at CDC. So kind of any advice you have about networking and making connections or building relationships? Absolutely. Um, so I guess I'll start with the, the first part of that question, which is what is the CDC Young Professionals Network? Um, YPN, which is what we all refer to it as, is is an official employee organization here at CDC that really is trying to connect and empower 
what we call CDC's young professionals, but we don't say young by any type of age. It's really just early career professionals or people just new to the agency. So regardless of how long you've been in public health or regardless um, of how old you are on your birth certificate, um, if you are new to CDC, we consider you a young, a new young professional at the agency. So YPN works to bring this cohort of, of people together to provide professional development opportunities and community service events, and then also just social events so that we can all kind of meet one another and, and network. As you said, Whitney, it's, it's a huge agency, so it can be pretty daunting um, to kind of see like where you fit in beyond just your immediate work team. Um, and YPN, I think, when we were doing in-person events, uh, did a really great job at connecting new people. I've made great friends through YPN events before I even got very involved myself. Um, and now virtually, it's also kind of given us a silver lining because um, CDC is a huge agency in Atlanta already, but the fact that we have so many different campuses, both domestically and abroad, the fact that we've all gone virtual has, has meant that our YPN events have now been more accessible to people that are in CDC country offices or any of the other domestic uh, locations. So um, YPN is de was definitely a way that I was able to kind of broaden my network um, after being a member for the first year that I was here in the fellowship. I ran for the executive board and I, I'm just about to finish my tenure as the YPN conference lead. Um, that has been just a, a great experience to meet new people, to learn about other divisions within the agency, other work, uh, to make new friends. Um, and I would I would highly recommend that for anybody who's coming new to CDC or really to, to any organization, try to find those extracurricular kind of activities. I know that we all are incredibly busy in our usual work. Um, but it could it could prove fruitful, um, just to kind of you know hear from different experience or different personalities and, and perspectives and to, to make new friends. Um, I think to that to that kind of advice still I would say I'm a person who puts my hand up to kind of help out with anything that I find interesting, and I would say the best way to really um, make the most out of being new somewhere and um, being in a new position is just volunteer to get involved on any and every project that you find interesting. Um, even if it's in a very small role, not only is that great experience for you to network and, and to kind of um, make yourself more visible, but it, it can also just be a really great way to just meet other interesting people and kind of um, just have other, other kind of non-traditional mentors in a way, or um, I'm a big advocate that mentors don't just need to be um, people who are a bit higher in their career than you are like you can you can mentor at your same level um, and you can be a mentee at your same level so um, by kind of putting your hand up there and being like yeah that's something that I think I can help with or that's that sounds like an interesting project or that sounds like a really cool event that I can go to um, you'll just continue to broaden your your network and your horizon I think with with just how much they're is out there and, and what great people there are that you can kind of connect with. Thanks for sharing. That's all great advice. I like your point too about, you know, you don't have to be in a super high advisory level to, to mentor someone. You can, you know, mentor someone on your same level. So um, yeah, thanks for sharing. Sure. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> Before the pandemic, so transitioning a little bit here, okay. uh, what what travel did you do as a fellow abroad? And are there any lessons or key moments that stand out from those trips? Oh, yeah. Um, so as you mentioned, when we started this conversation, we all kind of, my cohort came into this program um, kind of right before COVID hit. So uh, we had maybe nine months or so um, until like kind of our whole fellowship program and, and the world changed a little bit. Um, one of the first projects that I got involved in when I came into the program was supporting um, HIV recent infection surveillance, as I mentioned before, in Tanzania. So I did travel to Tanzania twice before um, really kind of everything closed down. Um, the first time I went with one of um, the full-time uh, colleagues of mine who was the then kind of point person for this project in, in Tanzania. Um, that was for a two-week TDY. It was kind of a, a bit hectic of a time. So this was all at the end of um, 2019 and I actually traveled to Tanzania for two two-week trips within a six-week period. <laughs> so it was very much a went to Tanzania the first time around for kind of what we call the, the high-level train the training or train the trainer kind of part of implementation. Flew back for the Thanksgiving holiday and then um, flew back to Tanzania for the step-down trainings in which we were actually in um, our hospitals and, and, and training the point of care um, professionals. So um, that was an incredibly cool experience. Um, it was the first time I was on the African continent. It was the first time I was meeting um, some of my colleagues and friends who had been working with already for a couple months, but we'd only ever really been on, on Skype calls. Um, and it just really hammered home that I was working where I needed to be working. So I was in incredibly enamored by the ability to be in another place, kind of learn about a culture, assist how I could, um, learn from others, not just kind of come in with, with my own um, lived experience, trying to, to support from that realm. But it was very much a, a give and a take kind of a um, learning experience. So um, one of the things that I would definitely recommend is um, I'm the type of person that likes to listen before I really speak, um, especially in a new environment. So on that whole first trip, I basically approached it as I was coming over like a sponge, um, but I was just going to support my colleague who had had a longstanding working relationship with our um, colleagues in Tanzania. And I was coming just kind of to observe and to learn how I could fit in there and, and what kind of work I could contribute to there. By the time I was there for the second trip, I felt far more autonomous and like I knew what I could actually contribute. So I started to find my voice a little bit more. And then that, that working relationship was just further strengthened by now kind of knowing, well, this is, this is what I can kind of contribute to this collective work. Um, I also was very mindful that while I was there, I wanted to fully immerse myself in the culture. Um, I remember during our um, kind of onboarding, we had a, a, a training about traveling overseas and, and so much of that training was talking about being relocated to a new post. 
um, for those of us that go into a country um, for a week or two weeks, we kind of don't have that kind of wider like idea of, um, you know, the culture, the people, the customs. We come in for a week or two and, and we kind of have to be really ready to just kind of immerse ourselves. Um, I wanted to learn Kiswahili as, as much as I could while I was there. So I kept a running tab on my phone, a note of, of just kind of key Kiswahili phrases I needed to learn. Um, I would take, uh, you know, bajajis or little taxis and I would ask the taxi driver, like I would, I learned how to say, I think one of the first things I did was I'm trying to learn Kiswahili, like, can you help me practice? Um, and that's how I was able to kind of add to my like, knowledge base and that, and that went a really long way. I mean, I think uh, my CDC Tanzania colleagues would laugh because they all say that I speak Swahili now with a Spanish accent. Um, but I think that they just genuinely got a kick out of the fact that I was really trying. Um, and, uh, I think that really meant a lot kind of to both of us. It really, uh, kind of solidified the camaraderie. I love hearing you say that, you know, you listen before you speak and really taking the time to be an observer. And then with the language piece, just even knowing like basic greetings or how to say thank you or, um, yeah, really kind of soak, soak things in like a sponge, like you were saying is yeah, such great advice. Uh, well, what has your work been like responding to COVID-19 and what have been some key takeaways from that response work? Yeah. So I kind of alluded earlier that I'm currently on a, a COVID response role. Um, I've actually deployed three times on three different task forces during the COVID response. So the first time I was deployed with the global migration uh, task force, then I went over to the international task force, and now I'm on the um, state, tribal, local, and territorial support task force. Um, those three response roles have been very different from one another. Um, on the Global Migration Task Force, I came on as a data manager and I was providing technical assistance to federal, state, and local partners. Um, I was also, however, supporting investigations into possible secondary transmission of COVID-19 on commercial aircraft. So I came into that response role really going, like being a data manager, I was helping them with their database cleaning and, and it was very data, data, data focused. And I think as I kind of, as the team got to know me a little bit more and, and vice versa, I think they recognized that there were other skill sets that I can contrib contribute to the work. So that's how we kind of pivoted into that kind of investigations mindset. Um, I stayed with global migration for something like 12 weeks on and off. So it was, it was a good amount of time. And I've stayed in contact with some of my colleagues and friends there. So that's been a, a really neat kind of different global health focused role. Then I went from global migration to the international task force. And there I was deployed as a community mitigation and contact tracing specialist. So in that realm, we were supporting CDC country offices um, on really how to optimize their contact tracing uh, processes. This was during a time in which uh, COVID incidents was ramping up uh, resources weren't necessarily following suit, um, and there was no way that um, our colleagues could really follow up on all of the contacts that a single case could potentially bring forward as um, potentially someone that needed to be followed up and monitored. So 
in in on this team and in this role, I helped to develop guidance on contact tracing optimization and, and different strategies in which we said we recognize that traditional contact tracing and, and community mitigation practices just will not work in this environment just because of how quickly the pandemic is spreading. So, so here are some tools um, that we can provide you all and we can have trainings on that could potentially help to um, identify the areas that are most feasible to innovate and, and um, lessen the workload, if you will. Um, during that response role, I one, two of, I think, the, the kind of major takeaways that I had there were two particular presentations that I was a part of. The first was um, a, a four and a half hour kind of symposium that I led with two colleagues of mine. This was for um, more than 300 field epidemiology training program and Ministry of Health colleagues in Colombia. My portion of this uh, symposium was an hour long presentation on case source and outbreak investigations in the context of COVID-19. And it was entirely in Spanish. So I'm a native Spanish speaker, but like a lot of um, the listeners who are also native in any other languages, when when we grew up speaking another language, we grew up speaking that language very um, commonly and very kind of familiarly. Um, not we didn't we didn't learn how to talk about epidemiological concepts in our native languages unless we went to school for for that in that language. We we didn't study medicine in that language necessarily. So this was um, a kind of a really interesting way for me to. Um, quite literally translate my skills, but also to kind of push myself even beyond, yes, I say I'm a native Spanish speaker, but I did not think I would need to be um, ever really, uh, you know, talking about case investigation methods in, in Spanish to, to people who are epidemiologists, are, um, you know, data managers, are physicians in, in the Spanish language themselves. So that was a really cool opportunity. Yeah, that's such a technical language. Did you do any trainings to help you, like to to learn more of what you you know what you would need to have? Not anything formal. Um, one of my colleagues that I was working on this with um, was a, a health scientist and a health like behavior specialist at CDC, but he did do all of his training. Um, like in, in Spanish in his home country. So a lot of the script that I wrote, I, I kind of worked through it all kind of first myself. And then we had like this whole group of um, either second generation or first generation Spanish, Spanish speakers kind of cross check each other's work, um, both to make sure that we were getting concepts uh, through, but also because there's just so much variability in the Spanish language, depending on where you're from. Um, so it was, it was definitely a, a group effort and, and it turned out to be pretty fruitful. Um, that's so great to hear that you've, you've built on that. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's also, um, this, there, a, a book chapter that was sent to me from another colleague in which many epidemiological and like technical words are provided in four languages. So it translates from English, Spanish, French, and Portuguese. Um, that's been something that I have kind of just saved and bookmarked on my computer for just kind of, oh, how, how do I say immunological suppression again? Uh, so it's, <laughs> it's definitely, um, 
one of those things that we kind of don't think about when we say that we are native and, and we are absolutely fluent, but perhaps not so much in talking about PCR results or something alike. Well, this is my final question, and it's a two-part question. So um, how has the fellowship impacted your career trajectory? So if you, you know, I know this is a, a big question, but you're entering your third and final year as a fellow um, and just kind of your thoughts about what you'd like to pursue after the fellowship. And then if you have any advice, I know you've shared really great advice throughout this episode, but if you have any other advice for people who are listening and have been inspired by your story and want to follow in your footsteps, kind of what has entered, um, what has helped you enter this field and succeed? Yeah, um, I think the, the first part of that was how has the fellowship uh, impacted my trajectory moving forward? Um, I think, again, it's something I'll, I'll keep reiterating. I've, I've always been interested in, in the world of global health. Um, this fellowship or the opportunity to apply for this fellowship kind of came at, at, at a time I wasn't really actively looking for it, but I was very open to new opportunities. Um, and I'm, and this fellowship program has, has really given me the opportunity to get my feet wet really in, in global health and has only further reinforced my interest. Um, so needless to say, uh, post-fellowship, I'm, I'm looking to stay with CDC and, and within the Center for Global Health. And um, I think now more than ever, if I didn't know that I would wanted to kind of work in the field of epidemiology, I, I now know that 150%. So I will be um, looking into opportunities to stay with the center in an epidemiologist role kind of long-term and, and eventually I will pursue uh, a PhD as well. Um, I, I've, I'm definitely a, a type of person that's a lifelong learner, um, whether that comes in kind of very structured learning environments or kind of, um, you know, lived experience learning environments. Uh, so definitely I am nowhere near done kind of learning what, what I don't know yet. Um, as far as for people who are interested in, um, you know, global health or epidemiology and, and what I would say could potentially make you successful would be take some time to really do some soul searching and, and identify what it is that really makes you tick. Um, I think the field of public health and global health is just so vast and varied that a, a lot of people, and myself included, I read at the beginning, just said I was interested in global health. Um, but I didn't really, I couldn't make it any more narrow than just global health. Um, by some by some of my lived experience at the Florida Department of Health, by some conversations that I've had with colleagues and friends that have worked in global health before, um, I was really then able to identify where my interests lied and, and, and where my skills were and, and then kind of try to figure out where, where does that overlap. So these are the things that I know how to do. These are the things I want to learn how to do. And um, these are the opportunities or, or the ways in which I think that I can kind of marry those two together. I would recommend to anyone any time to just kind of put yourself out there. I think sometimes we can get it like very much into our heads um, about why we shouldn't apply to that fellowship or that job or why we wouldn't be qualified for this or that or, well, that's not really what I want to be doing, but or, or I think that's just like, you know, above me or that, that type of rhetoric. Um, 
but I would, I would implore people to really kind of push themselves out of that mentality and, and really just kind of step up and, and jump into any and every project. Like I said before, that would be interesting to you. Um, schedule time to talk with people whose jobs or career trajectories you find interesting yourself and that they kind of resonate with you by no means is this like, um, I'm not saying interviewing with these people or anything, just kind of have a very casual conversation with, with folks. Most people will be willing to talk to you if, if you, if you approach them to do so. Um, keep in mind that, you know, kind of our, our higher ups and our supervisors were once in the roles that we were in. Um, and I would be willing to bet that the majority of them would want to kind of just instill whatever wisdom that they've picked up along the way, the same way that we we've done to people who are, um, kind of just starting out as well. Um, I think if you if you really take the time to know what it is that you want out of out of your next position, your next opportunity, um, and you really know what good you can do, uh, I think you would probably be in- incredibly a passionate and be successful as a result of it. Great advice, and yeah, great great note to end on as well. Um, well, thank you so much, Danielle, for your time and sharing more about your background and your work. Uh, so interesting, uh, the, the different kind of <laughs> curves your career has taken you so far. <laughs> and I'm really looking forward to, to following along and, and seeing where it goes next. Oh, thanks so much, Whitney. Yeah, it's been a it's been kind of a curvy road, but I'm definitely a person who's open to all of those twists and turns. Um, so it's been a fun ride. Thank you to our guest, Danielle Fernandez, MPH, and all of you for tuning in to the PHI CDC Global Health Podcast. This podcast is a project of the PHI CDC Global Health Fellowship Program, implemented by the Public Health Institute and its partner consortium of universities for global health for the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Please join us next time as we share more fellowship stories. To learn more about our program and see how we are making meaningful contributions to today's global health challenges, visit our website at phi-cdcfellows.org. If you enjoy the podcast, you can always subscribe or rate us and leave a review, which helps other listeners find the podcast. For questions, please email us at info at phi-cdcfellows.org. This podcast is produced by Whitney Hall. Thank you to Mike Sage, Christine Caraballo, Justine Dulay, Natasha Alcas, Laura Michael, Felicia Warren, CDC Center for Global Health, PHI, and CUGH.